Awesome. Well, good morning. Thanks, Trip. Said my name and everything. Uh, yeah, well, today we're starting our new series called All Things New, How Jesus Transforms Our Cultural Moment. Uh, it's a series where our aim is to talk about things uh, and realities in our life, in our city, uh, in our culture, the, the human existence in Los Angeles. Uh, things like truth and science or human existence, like what are we here for, uh, gender, uh, art, sexuality, power, war, justice, significance, and politics. Uh, these are all the things that really make up a culture. Uh, even if anthropologists go back and they're trying to study what the ancient Greeks were doing and what their culture was, those are the things that they look at. Uh, also, you could just sort of lump that all together and just say that's what it means uh, to be a human in this life. Uh, and there's a few ways that people try to process topics like that, uh, all those sort of easy topics in the church. Uh, one way is to say, well, the Bible doesn't really talk about that. Uh, it doesn't really speak specifically to different topics. Like a few years ago, uh, marijuana became legal uh, in Oregon, and then California made it more legal than anyone else. Uh, and when I was a pastor in Oregon, people were like, oh, well, the Bible doesn't talk about this at all, so it's just like whatever we want to do. And so we can just, you know, talk to the greatest minds and resources and, and the thought leaders out there, and there's no real, like, intersection. And we can do that with, with all of these topics. That's what some people do. Others might go the other way and say, well, the Bible talks about everything. All we need to do is put in Google in the search. Uh, back in the day, you, have to, you would have to you know, look through a concordance, which was a big, thick book. But now you can just go to Google and you type in Bible plus politics, and whatever pops up, uh, that's what you do. And you just read all of those different passages uh, based on that keyword, and then that's what the Bible says. Um, anyone done any of these approaches to anything in life? And some people combo those approaches too. Uh, many of us actually go through life just truly not examining why we believe certain things about uh, our gender or our identity or politics or sexuality. It's just we sort of inherit it from our parents and from those around us. Uh, that's how powerful culture is, is because you get placed within it and you don't know that you're there. And so you just assume all of these things until something goes wrong and one of your assumptions proves incorrect. And then you go into this sort of crisis of, well, if that assumption was wrong, maybe everything is wrong. But this is what we want to do in this series is neither, none of those things. So if you want to do those things, you can do them on your own time. What we're going to do is we're going to look through the lens of the story. Uh, each of these things in light of the story of God, from creation to rebellion to the promise to the redemption in Jesus into the church and into restoration. In this grand narrative that we find ourselves in, we want to we put ourselves in that story. And actually through that, we kind of begin to see what's broken in these different aspects of human existence, what's broken in culture, what's true. Uh, that's what we'll, we'll do. And so we'll work through each of these topics saying, how is God's unfolding story that we're in the middle of, how does that speak to all of these different things? 
And so today, uh, we're just going to start with that story and just a big picture view of culture. So if you're really excited for me to dump it, jump straight into politics, uh, you have to wait like eight weeks because that one's last. Uh, that's how we do it. We just wait for those hard things until the very end. Uh, but we're going to start today with story. Uh, Barbara Kingsolver, she's one of the great living novelists and storytellers uh, in this day and age. She wrote a great book called uh, The Poisonwood Bible. She also wrote a book called Animal Dreams. Anyway, I'm just giving you hints on things you could read besides Harry Potter. Uh, Barbara Kingsolver, she says this in uh, Poisonwood Bible. She says, to live is to be marked. To live is to change. To acquire the words of a story. She's saying life is about acquiring the vocabulary of a story. She goes on in this passage, the character that she's writing begins to talk about there's a story that's already happening, and life is about learning just the language of that story. Uh, Mark Twain, uh, I think we should all know who he is. He said this, he's a great storyteller. He says, I like a good story well told. That's the reason I'm sometimes forced to tell them myself. He was really funny. Eugene Peterson, one of my uh, favorite people that I quote all the time, he wrote this about story. He says, The gospel is where God's story and our story meet. Saying that, that what, what God does in Jesus, uh, what the whole existence of God and what he's aiming to do to call his people to himself, that is where God's story and our story collides. He goes on to say, when we submit our, our lives to what we read in scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. He's saying here that when we put ourselves underneath the scriptures, which he claims, which many, all of us sort of claim, is the, the scriptures are the story of God. When we put ourselves underneath that, when we begin to read them, we begin to see that it's not our stories involved at all, but it's God's story. He uh, finally, at the end of that quote, goes like this. He says, The holy scriptures are story-shaped. Reality is story-shaped. The world is story-shaped. Our lives are story-shaped. Which is why uh, we're going to teach through all of these topics through the story. Life is story-shaped. So I just want to begin in Genesis 1 as we talk about culture and work ourselves, ourselves through the entire scriptures. So it should be fun and and quick, and fast, and uh, eloquent. Uh, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning of all culture is God creating the heavens and the earth. It, says the, it goes on in verse 2, which we don't have up here, but it says, The earth was without shape and was void. Even in Hebrew, it's like the, the earth was wild. The earth was, was in chaos, and, and, and God created and formed and shaped out of that earth. 
creation, the world, the cosmos. And, and next week we'll talk a lot about science, so we can jump in more then. Uh, but what we see here first is that the culture, that the, everything that exists in this world comes from God and his shaping, his forming, his creating it out of nothing. And then in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's why we're allowed to squash bugs, because we have dominion over it. <laughs> Those creeping things. That's also why we don't have to be scared of them, right? We have like authority over these creepy things. Uh, verse 27, he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. In creation, God creates humans, male and female. He creates us, and then he says to us, you are to make something out of this earth. As if God creates a perfect playground for all human beings to be. And then he says, go create and cultivate and subdue and have power over the things that I've created. God creates, then he creates us, and then we're to be in his own image, and we're supposed to be cultivators, just like God was when he formed and shaped the world. It's, it's telling, some of us might get lost in just the monotonous of him saying, yeah, every animal, every plant, he keeps describing all of these things. It might seem, well, that's kind of overkill, couldn't he just say, you're in charge of everything? But it's so poetic, it's so beautiful, because he goes by every single thing that he's listed, that God created in the first five days. He's now saying to humans, this is your domain. Uh, Andy Crouch, he uh, is a great sort of thinker on culture. He wrote a book called uh, Culture Making. He defines culture this way. Culture is what we, uh, as humans, make of the world. A big piece of that is what do we make out of the world, right? There's that meaning. What do we, we're, we're all born into this life and there's these things around us and what we make of it is the culture. That is, the, the, what do we make of our vocal cords of our own bodies? What do we make of the ground, of the plants? That's why and a really well-made omelet can be culture-making, as you combine plants and animals and everything, and you make it into something really wonderful. Uh, hopefully you've had an omelet before, right? Some of you all look confused. You're like, I don't know what this omelet thing is. Maybe you're used to the French pronunciation, omelet. <laughs> that is culture making. But also... Uh, which is why this is a great definition. Culture is what we make of the world, what we interpret 
about the world. How we, how we interpret the existence that we find. Or what, do we, what do we mean and what, do we in, uh, what meaning do we ascribe the coming and the going of the sun each day and the, the rain and the weather and these huge, sh- huge fish and these tiny, tiny fish? What do we make of that world? How do we interpret it? How do we interpret the essence of life? In the beginning, in creation, there was this beautiful uh, existence that these people had. They knew who they were. Do you see that? In, in humanity, they knew that they were images of God created for some wonderful purpose to multiply and fill and subdue the earth. They had this God-given thing. They also knew that they were given to, to name and even explore and examine all of the creatures in the world. That their purpose was to make something of the world. To make something of, they were born male and female, they had uh, love for one another, there was uh, goodness, there was relationships, there was significance. It was all packed in there. All of these things of culture were there in the very beginning. Also, if you continue on in chapter 2, you'll see that God walked with them throughout the day, telling them and showing them this world that he had made. God was, was with them beautifully saying, this is how this plant works. This is how uh, the seas work with the tides. God alongside them, God with them, and they knew uh, this beautiful life. Uh, In chapter 3, things shift pretty abruptly. Uh, Instead of God explaining, hey, this is how things work, they decide, hey, maybe we should decide how things work. What do we make of the world? Remember that, that question, I think they began to say, uh, maybe God is withholding from us. Maybe there's some knowledge that he's not giving us. Maybe there's some other stature where we could be more like God than we already are. And they rebel against the creator of the universe. And they hide in their shame and vulnerability and guilt. And then just to pick up this, this lostness of the beautiful culture in the beginning, in uh, chapter 3, verse 17... The second half of that verse, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. God's talking to to Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Suddenly, culture-making becomes very hard, becomes very confusing, uh, becomes very challenging, painful even. Out of pain, you shall eat and cultivate. Then in uh, chapter 6, verse 5, see, I told you we are going to read the whole Bible. He says uh, that... What happens is Adam and Eve leave the garden, now abandoned, alone. They're trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong on their own. Uh, they have children. Those children are worse than, their ch- than themselves, which is uh, true. Any parent, you know, you create these children, and then they're worse than you are. That's, people are like, no, that's not true. Uh, I'm just saying, double DNA, that's like, yeah. My children have both my wife and I's flaws. 
And then in chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continuously. Not only does culture become hard and difficult, there's now this new hanging question of what is wrong with the world? What is broken in this world? What is the problem? God says it's that humans, every intention of their thoughts, every action that they take is evil and for themselves all the time. Now they have to think, what do we make of war and death and evil? No longer is the cultural question, what do we make of this world, these relationships, these genders, this pleasure? Like Now it's, what do we also make of war and pain and conflict and evil? Now they're also separated from God, trying to decide and figure those things out, doing this cultural endeavor on their own. And it isn't just a a spiritual reality of this separation from God now, but it's a very physical one. Who's telling us what's good? Who's telling us what's right? Who's telling us how things are made and how they're supposed to work? Who's walking with us? And that, that brokenness of being alone in the world, they try to cope. They try to make something of this world. Now the the problem, it seems, is that we're destined to discover for ourselves what to make of a world that's in chaos. In Genesis 11, uh, 1 through 4, we, uh, we see their response. How is the world supposed to make something? What are we supposed to make of this problem of this world? In 11 it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them. Just by the way, that's like quite the technological advance. Like that people could take mud and uh, cut it out and burn it in fire and have just this consistent uh, tool, this consistent material to build things really profoundly. And they, they discovered, they did this amazing cultural endeavor. They made something of the world. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They said, let us use our language, this cultural artifact. Let us use our technology. Let us make a name for ourselves. In this world of chaos, this world of brokenness now, this world of evil and pain towards one another, they gather together and they say, the problem is people don't know our name. People don't know who we are. We don't know who we are. So let's build something to prove to ourselves and prove to the world who we are, that we're important. See, the culture isn't just what we make of the world after the fall, after this rebellion. Culture is now, what's the problem and how do we solve it? Uh, N.T. Wright uh, just defines culture that exact way. Culture is the problem and the solution for any group of people. 
And ours might not look like this Tower of Babel. It might look like oh, we can use science and technology so that the world won't be so scary and unpredictable. Maybe we can use jails and laws so that people won't be so unpredictable. We can use weapons or rewards. Then uh, this world won't be as dangerous of a place. Maybe we can do what they did and just put all of ourselves into making something, something of the world and our significance will pour directly from what people say about what we've made. Or maybe we can use these things of the world and the things including other humans and gain pleasure from it. And then maybe the world would be bad, but we would be happy. Or we can use contracts where we sign on the dotted line to get people to do what we want and to use things. Or we can use politics to conquer others and to conquer those that we disagree with. See, culture becomes, in light of this brokenness, not just uh, who we are and what we're supposed to make, but what we do to solve the problem. It exists because truth is twisted, because peace has been broken, because death is dominant in this story. So the question that every group of people asks in all times and in all places is, what is the problem, what's the solution, and how will we fix it? Uh, We ask questions around here. So I want to ask us, if we just think about Los Angeles and think about those questions, uh, what, is, what are the problems, or what is one avenue of the problem? What's, what's the way that we say we will fix it? And then how will we go about fixing that? So if we want to just take an example and work it through those questions and then share with the whole class, we will all learn something. Yeah. Anyone want to take a stab at it? It could be anything, yeah. What's the problem? How do we fix it? And that is how you understand the culture of a place. You can go, Becky. Mm-hmm. You have this sort of like Hollywoody kind of culture, um, and underneath that brokenness, you also have poverty. So many different types of people live here, and we all fail to see each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then how does the... That's a great problem. That's a great identification of the problem that our city acknowledges, right? There's this huge divide uh, racially, economically between people, right? Then how does our city say we'll, we'll solve it? What are the ways that we say we'll solve it? Anybody else can answer too. Totally, yeah, like, let's make laws to make it equal, or let's make some policies so people have to interact. And if people interact, then they'll like each other. 
Yeah, yeah. What are you going to say, Jeff? Mm-hmm. As a way to like, yeah, help people become familiar with seeing a different story before there isn't segregation of economic levels and all that. Yeah. So yeah. So we pour ourselves. In, we'll like make a. We'll make a show that shows these divides are put back together, and it'll be really great. And then people will see the story, and they'll change. They're going to go out and befriend someone from a different, and then our city will be happy. Yeah. We unite around like like horse rams and stuff and try to like everybody like, hey, we're all on the same team. Totally, yeah. Let's let we have <laughs> what's wrong with the city. Uh we haven't won in a long time. So like sports is a really great analogy, even for all of our teams that we've got here. We'll just put a bunch of money into the Dodgers. We'll put a bunch of money into the Rams. We'll put a bunch of money into the Lakers. And then we'll win, and then our city will be united. Yeah. What are you going to say? Yeah, so the, the problem is, is everyone's unhappy. The solution is everybody should just do whatever they want to make themselves happy. And so we should do whatever it takes so that people can do that, right? And then we'll be happy. We'll solve that problem, yeah. The same, you can also answer these questions through the lens of your own uh, family or even your own family of origin. And you can ask, what was the problem always that my family was trying to solve and how did my family try to solve that? And that gets you to the very like, depths of what your family culture was all about. For example, if it was the problem we're always trying to solve is uh, we were around each other all the time and we'd always have fights and conflicts. So we solved that. Uh, the solution would be us not being around each other anymore so, or being distracted. So we're going we're gonna to do that by having enough money to put into us being apart from each other and then we'll be happy. Uh, or the problem could have been, oh, we're not comfortable. Uh, there's all this discomfort. We'll pour money into uh, raising our level of, uh, of status so that we can be comfortable, and then our family will be good. Uh, for my family, it was, if we, the problem is nobody knows our name. So if we do something really important or significant or wonderful, even if we, we do a bunch of good stuff for God, then God will see us and other people will see us and they'll say, hey, you guys did such a great job. So how do you do that? You just you know, give yourself all the time to doing stuff for God with hopes that he will, will notice you. Uh, this, these questions uh, get to the very core of, of what this city is about. So I just challenge you just this week 
to be thinking about as you look at all the different aspects of our city, say, what is our city saying is the problem, and what is the city saying is the solution to that problem? This is where most cultural studies and analyses end. That's the, the baseline of anthropology, is defining and seeing uh, how a culture copes with a broken world. But that's not the end in this story. That's not the end of the, the Christian story. The Christian story is really unique uh, because even from the very beginning, there's this promise of a God not just being the central uh, creator, but also being the central core curator of all of the solutions that could ever uh, be required. But that, that Jesus is the center, central figure in how to redeem and restore the world. And so even in, uh, after Genesis 11, it begins in chapter 12 with this uh, great endeavor of a family of people who will be holy and will be marked by God and that the rest of the world will see what God is like and they will be a blessing again. If you remember in Genesis uh, 2, what we read, that God told them that they were blessed from the beginning. And so God says, I'm going to make a family. I'm going to bless them. They're going to go and we're going to create this uh, nation, this people group, and they're going to do all these things that are super distinct and they required all of the artisans, all of the farmers, all of these people to make something of the world that would show all of humanity what God is really like. But in that, there was this promise to this family that from them, uh, there would be a king who would come and restore everything. We read it, uh, some of these great prophecies uh, during Advent. Uh, one, of the, one of the primary ones is Isaiah 9, where, where it's written that uh, the people would see light, that the people's joy would be more full, more complete, and there would be a ruler who would come and who would end all wars and all strife among people, and that he would reign and he would put the government on his shoulders, and he would rule the world. The Christian story says, the problem is we rebel against God. God created a beautiful world for us to play in. We rebelled against God. Now all humanity just does what is good and right in their own eyes, and it destroys us and it destroys the earth. But God is going to come and make it all new and right. Jesus arrives on the scene from this promise. He arrives as the one. He says in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He says, the time is now. The promise has been complete in me. He also says in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the light. Whereas in Isaiah 9, there's the promise of the light coming. Jesus arrives, he lives this amazing life, pushing back against evil, restoring uh, people who are lost and wandering and in darkness all of the time. He comes and he lives this life. Uh, Paul describes this life in Colossians chapter 1. It's a very famous uh, passage just about the uh, complete supremacy of Jesus it says this in Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ Through him, all things are created to begin with. All things are held together. He has uh, power over all things. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. In Jesus, we see that uh, he not only uh, comes into this world and, and lives this remarkable life. In his living, he shows us what to make of the world. It's amazing. You look through the whole Gospels, Jesus is the greatest culture maker there ever was. I mean, on the spot, he's just coming up with these stories that are phenomenal and so profound that even in popular culture today, people refer to them without even knowing it. Jesus lives the kind of life that everyone hopes that we would live. Uh, The sayings that he comes up with are more profound than Mark Twain's, right? Uh, We all want to see someone turn the other cheek. We want to see someone uh, uh, give their enemy a cloak. Even the the deep parts of our culture that says people should be cared for comes from Jesus. He lives this life, this legacy where, where his name, even if you take out all religious context or all spirituality, his name still carries with it, wow, what a guy for us to all emulate. What a person for us to be. Even if you were to, to take down all of the stuff about him being the son of God and just say, here is a human. Like in a National Geographic, there was a whole issue devoted to him last year. It's been like three months since I referred to that magazine, so it's okay, right? But they, they, analysis, they did this analysis on his entire life and what he probably even looked like. They also uh, did this study about what his brain must have been like. Because we all have in our heads, these uh, in our brains, I'm not going to be very scientific, but we have uh, these factories within our brain that produce empathy and care for another person. And so they've like you know, cut open people's brains who are complete sociopaths and narcissists. And, and their, that part of their brain is so tiny you can barely see it. And what they uh, sort of hypothesized was Jesus' brain must have been so enlarged at that place because he had such deep empathy for other people. And these are just scientists and uh, anthropologists who are just looking at the life of Jesus and what he did. His life showed us what to make of this world. But then his death shows us what the problem is with the world and how it will be fixed. It shows us that the problem with this world is that all of us are destined to death because we've rebelled and we're separated from the very living God who created us. Nothing we make of this world will ever be fruitful in any lasting, significant sense in our souls, unless it's made in the presence and with God. So Jesus dies for us. He says, the problem with the world is sin. The solution is my dying 
for the sake of all sins. That question of how much will people pay to solve the problem that they see. Jesus says in, in his kingdom, in his culture, it will cost him everything and he will gladly give it. But then in his resurrection, he shows us what he will remake of this world. And he will make all things new through himself. That's what Paul is describing here, that he will reconcile all things to himself through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. Because he is the fullness of God and that he laid it all down, he will dwell within us. He makes all things new. And I just want to say uh, to us, even if we all believe in this stuff and you're just being reminded of it, the gospel is worthy of a full, wholehearted, uh, rigorous, intellectual pursuit and exploration. Like, is the gospel a viable solution to any of the problems in our city? I think it's worthy of at least a full-blown exploration of that. Because it's so historic, as I just described with National Geographic. It's also so pervasive Uh, If billions of people believe this and give their lives to it across all cultures and all languages, all across times and centuries, it's at least worth giving your time to see what is that made of that people would pursue Jesus and a life of faith in him. It's also so rooted in your very own culture. Western culture is a Christian, girded-up foundation culture. Is America a Christian nation? I'm not saying that. I am saying that all of the things and all of our assumptions actually are born out of this story. So it's worth exploring just for that. But also, it has the greatest possibility of not only being the best story, but being the true story. And I profoundly believe that it is. And we can talk a plenty over whatever beverage you would like about that. But you can also see that it's the most, the best available story and also the true story just through the lives of the church, which is the next act in this story. God, uh, Jesus doesn't just come and die and is risen again. He also establishes a new people, a people within this world, a people who have answered Jesus' call to repentance and faith, and now they become his and live with this powerful purpose. We become his people. And then the church and culture is quite a fascinating thing. Uh, The church uh, sometimes runs from culture, says, we don't want that. We just run away and uh, bunker up, right? That's how we're supposed to engage with the world around us. What are we supposed to make of the world? It's dangerous. Hide. Run. Also, uh, some of us uh, at different times have said the, the church is supposed to be influencers of culture. We're supposed to pull the strings like the Godfather. Uh, we're just, we should just be in the shadows and kind of point things in the right direction. Other times, the church has said, we should be critics of the culture. We should stand from the outside and give people reviews. This is what we think of your art. This is what we think of your story. This is what we think of your policies. Let us critique the culture around us. 
Others have said the church should be imitators of the culture. You know, we should just take whatever is being created out there in the world, whatever Los Angeles is making of the world, we should just do it but with Jesus instead. Uh, If you, you know, like DC Talk, or if you like... uh, I, now I can't do it at all. Uh, but if you like uh, NWA, then you'll love DC Talk. Uh, if you really liked the Foo Fighters, then you'll really love Audio Adrenaline, right? We'll just take whatever the culture is doing and we'll make our own version of it. We'll be imitators of culture. Some of us say, let's just be, uh, the church should be relevant. If we could just muster up the abilities that other people would look at us and we would be just like them. And if, we could, if the church could be relevant in that way, people would know about us. If there was a name for ourselves, that would be worthwhile. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 8 through 11, Peter's describing uh, the call of the church. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, the church is described as sojourners in this land. But then here, I think he gives us a really beautiful picture of what does it mean to be the church. And this point of the story, after the redemption of Jesus, after being created as God's people, how do we interact and what do we make of this world? He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for evil, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from the evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Later on, Paul describes how we would, or Peter describes how we will suffer for all of this, how we'll be slandered against, how we'll be reviled. Uh, This whole book of Peter is written to a people being persecuted, and yet he says what we do is we live just like Jesus did in the culture, not segmented from it, not outside of it, but the, the view of the church and culture is that we would be within it that we would be fully tethered to it, that we would bind ourselves to it, that we would put ourselves within the city walls, that we would integrate our lives, that we would be involved in every sphere and domain of society, that we would be an unnamed, unarmed uh, army, powered with just the, the resurrection coursing through our veins and the power of Christ in us so that we could do good and keep peace and not speak with evil words or deceit, that we would be people fully integrated into a culture that might be opposed to everything that we believe, but we wouldn't run from it, but we would place ourselves in the midst of it, counting the welfare and the good of the city as our welfare too. So we would be passionate about seeing the city integrated, That we would put ourselves not uh, on the sides of buses as, hey, Soma, we make all people love one another. But that we would go into the places and we would actually uh, be a family that would welcome in people from all parts of our city. That even we would point to a greater unity than the Rams winning the Super Bowl tonight. In which, you know, 12,000 Angelinos will be very excited about. (laughs) 
But there's a greater unity, a greater victory that's already been won, that we would tether ourselves to it, that we would seek the welfare of it. Lastly, the story ends, uh, isn't over. The story doesn't end with the church striving within the culture. In Revelation 5, uh, this will be the, we've run out of Bible. So, there it is. I'm actually going to read this whole chapter. It speaks to this, this coming day. It says, Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lamb of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, but it was standing with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. And from every tribe and every language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I took and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The end of the story is uh, a mystery in many of the things that that describes. But it's also, there's this powerful reality and truth that that in the end, there's this scroll that we all want to see into. Uh, You know, that, that movie that we can't wait to see times a thousand. And Jesus is the one who is worthy, the lamb who stands but was slain. And he opens it and he unrolls it and all creatures in heaven and on earth, every language, every culture, every nation, every people group, every family with your own dysfunction, and there is plenty, will gather around and say, that is the one who's worthy. 
What he's created out of this story, what he's created out of this earth, what he's creating again, that is the thing that is completely worthy. Everything else is just a foreshadow of that moment. This is really good news. Even as we create, as we make something of this world, knowing that God will make it completely whole and good, and that there will be thousands of us singing and saying together, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Let him be blessed. Amen? Amen.